Jesus sent out the 12 with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any of the towns of the Samaritans. Rather, go to the lost sheep of Israel. And then he tells them what to proclaim, that his kingdom is near and to heal. But he specifically says, don't go among the Gentiles. And then from among the Gentiles, he singles out the Samaritans that the Jews especially hated because they were half-breeds. Why did Jesus tell him that? Isn't he a savior for the whole world? Since God so loved the world, we talk about Jesus' love for all peoples, but here he's just focused on the Jews and specifically tells them not to go to the Gentiles or to the Samaritans. What was, what was Jesus doing here? Then, a more problematic passage. Um, listen to this one. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him, Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. This is a stunning passage. At times, very confusing. Four particular places here. First, this woman comes up and she says, you know, is this a, a small problem? Because Jesus does not answer a word. He ignores her. Is it a small problem? Oh, her daughter is only demon-possessed and suffering terribly. And so Jesus does nothing? Is, is this the Jesus I've loved my whole life? What is going on? Who, who is this Jesus? Is he having a bad day? Is, does he sin here? The Bible says he never sinned. I, I can't figure this out. And so then his disciples come up and said, send her away. She keeps crying out after us. Jesus, this woman's bugging us. Just tell her to get out of here. And then Jesus answers, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. So he tells her, woman, you're a Gentile. You're not on my radar. I was sent only to the Jews. How compassionate was that? But the woman still came and knelt before him. Lord, help me. And he replies, It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Now, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to figure this one out. Children's bread, the Israelites. Dogs are who? Gentiles. Whoa. So Jesus calls this woman a dog. We've mentioned before, a common prayer at that time was, Lord, thank you that I am not a Gentile, a woman, or a dog. And don't we expect Jesus to kind of turn that around and uplift women to the place they belong? We talk about Jesus doing that, but he seems to have gotten tripped up here. And then what's her response? Yes, it is, Lord. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Seems like now suddenly he's called her a dog and she takes that identity. He's offered an identity to her and she grabs onto it. Yes, we're dogs, Lord, but help me anyways. Is this the Jesus we follow? Who first ignores the woman? with a demon-possessed daughter who is suffering terribly, 
and then tells her, sorry, I'm only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. And then he says, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. That bother anybody here? That make you a little bit uncomfortable? Is this the Jesus we follow that we teach our children to follow? Yeah, it's a troubling passage. Troubling question. Was Jesus having a bad day here? Well, I think the answer to this question, to do it, we've got to take a long route to get there. Because this, this passage deserves an answer. What was Jesus doing? What was he saying? He was saying the same things, it seems, that those around him said. Why? Well, first, let's go back and very briefly, we'll take 10 minutes to look at the Old Testament. And don't write these down. These passages are all written up in your bulletin. And later you can look at them. I think it'd be helpful for it to, to look at these. This is an important concept. But we want to see that throughout the whole of the Old Testament, God had a passion to see his name glorified among the nations. We've talked about this before. We've done motions to help you remember it. But I want to go through it really quickly because it's important that we have, we have to have this foundation to, to answer this passage. So in creation, God's first command to Adam and Eve was be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. They were, this was before the fall. They're in perfect relationship with him. He says, fill the earth. He wanted the earth to be filled with people in relationship with him so it would magnify the glory that came to the Godhead. But then man fell away and sinned. But the first thing he did, he curses Satan and says, there's going to be hatred between your offspring and the woman's offspring. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He talks about this redeemer that's going to come. It was a prophecy of Jesus who would come and on the cross would defeat Satan and sin and death. So as soon as man fell away, God began talking about a redeemer. But mankind got worse and worse to the point where God takes the one righteous man he finds, Noah, who he said walked with God and his family and preserves them and wipes out everyone else. And then what does he command Noah when he gets off the ark with his family? Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. He wanted to start over with this one righteous man and his family. And he wants them to populate the earth so it'll be filled with people worshiping him, bringing him glory. But man, again, disobeys, becomes more and more evil, and at Babel, they do the opposite. Instead of spreading out and glorifying God, they say, let's stay here and make a name for ourselves. So God confuses their languages that causes them to spread out, and 70 nations come out of that. God loves all 70 nations, but he, his strategy is to use one man and his descendants, Abraham to bless all of them, and he makes a covenant with them, and he says, through you, Abraham, all peoples on earth will be blessed. So then that covenant's passed down to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. The 11th, Joseph, ends up becoming second in power to Pharaoh in Egypt, but then the Pharaohs turn against the Jews as they become big, a bigger and bigger nation. God raises up Moses. And Moses, through the ten plagues, delivers them out of Egypt. And at one point he says to Pharaoh, he says, Pharaoh, uh, God's speaking through Moses here, I've raised you up for this purpose, that I might show you my power and that I might, my name will be proclaimed in all the earth. And so through the ten plagues, they're delivered. And the ten plagues not only got them out of Egypt, but also each of the plagues corresponded with a different Egyptian god. So God was showing his superiority to the Egyptian and so that when they left, in Exodus chapter 12, it says there were 600,000 men and men on foot besides women and children, and many other people went up with them. These were the Egyptians or foreigners who had seen the amazing things God had done, and they became part of the community 
of the Israelites. And they crossed the Red Sea, and that was so miraculous that later we learn in Joshua 2, Rahab and Jericho, she said, we all heard about it, and we trembled because we heard how you crossed the Red Sea and how you defeated the kings of Sihon and Og, and we trembled. And her family said, spare us when you come. And they went and followed after the God, the Most High God, the God of the Israelites. Then they went to Mount Sinai and were given the law. And in the law in Deuteronomy 4, it said the law wasn't given just to make Israel unique, but it was so that the nations around them would see how incredible their laws were and thus how incredible their God was and would be attracted to follow him. And then also in Leviticus, it talks about they were commanded to love the foreigner as one of their native-born, to love the foreigner as yourself. But again, when they sent the 12 spies in, there was disobedience. They decided not to take the promised land. They didn't have enough faith. And so they were punished by wandering in the wilderness. And during those 40 years, the nations weren't blessed because of Israel's disobedience. But eventually they did enter the promised land. And Ezekiel says, God says, Here is Jerusalem that I have placed in the center of the nations with countries all around her. And as we see the map here, Jerusalem would have been right up in this area. And, any, and this is Saudi Arabia and the Arabian Desert. So anyone going from Asia to North Africa to Africa would have had to come right through Jerusalem. Anyone from Europe to Africa would have come through Jerusalem. So it wasn't just randomly that God picked that area, but he had a purpose for the blessing of the nations. Then they had the period of judges, and again, another period of disobedience. But despite that, we have Ruth during that period. Her mother-in-law, Naomi, and her two sons went up to Moab, a Gentile area, and married Moabite women. The sons then died. Ruth, Naomi was going to go back to, to Israel, and, and Ruth says, I'll go with you, and your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. She becomes a follower of the Most High God, the God of the Israelites. And then she ends up marrying um, and Boaz and becomes the great-grandmother of King David and is listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, a Moabite. Then the United Kingdom. First is Saul, and he's disobedient, and so the nations aren't blessed. But then there's David. And from a young age, they say maybe it was even at 13 that he fought Goliath. And he says to Goliath, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the God of the armies of Israel. Today I'll cut off your head, and I'll feed the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the wild animals. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. He was a man after God's own heart. He had a passion. His passion was to see God's name glorified among the nations. So even at age 13, he's already doing that. In Psalm 22, he further praises God and predicts how all the nations will bow down, or prophesies how one day all the nations will bow down before God. That same period of time, we have the psalmist in Psalm 67, called the missionary psalm, asking God to bless them so that all the nations will be blessed. And like his father, Solomon continued the first half of his life. He was a chip off the old block. He had a passion for the nations like his father did. When he dedicated the temple, he, he asked God, he said, God, please, when the foreigner prays at this temple, answer his prayer so that they will fear your name just like your people Israel do. And then God gave him great wisdom. And it says, uh, from all over the world, people came to listen to his wisdom. Queen of Sheba from Ethiopia, she came and listened and took back this belief in the God of the Israelites. Ethiopians to this day trace their Christianity back to her coming to see Solomon. Then there was a divided kingdom, a time of disobedience. But even in the midst of that, that's when Jonah was sent to the Ninevites, and the Ninevites repent in an amazing way. Then there's the Assyrian exile, God's judgment on their disobedience of the northern kingdom. And what happens? During that time, the prophets are still speaking. In Isaiah 49, he says, It's too small a thing for you to be my servant, 
to restore the tribes of Jacob. I will also make you a light to the Gentiles. So even during that period, God is speaking about the Gentiles coming to faith in him. Then the Babylonian captivity, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, through their exploits and their faith in God, King Nebuchadnezzar, King Darius, they believe in the God of the Israelites and make proclamations that everyone in their kingdom is to revere him. Amazing things happen, amazing blessings to the nations, even in spite of Israel's disobedience. And then King Cyrus of Persia allows the return. And during that time, Esther, for whatever reason, does not return, but stays in in Ur, which many believe is now um, part of Iraq. And at the end of that book, it says, In every province and every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. So through her, many people of other nationalities became Jews. So God was at work all throughout the Old Testament. We have this idea sometime at the end of Jesus' life, he, he gave him this new concept of going and making disciples of all nations. No, God's heart for the nations started in eternity past and carries on through eternity future. Which makes, again, Jesus calling this Canaanite woman a dog so peculiar. It stands out in contrast to the, the whole tenor of the Old Testament. And also the New Testament, as we look at Jesus' actions in the New Testament. From his genealogy in Matthew 1, it included Judah and Tamar. That's a story unto itself, a very messy, sinful story. But they're included in his genealogy. Rahab, the harlot, Bathsheba's name is mentioned. Ruth, the Moabite, a Gentile, is listed in there. And it teaches us that Jesus came to be a Messiah for all peoples, for sinners, for Gentiles, for Jews, for all people. In his birth, the angel said, we bring you good news for all peoples. Jesus' early childhood, he spent his first three to five years in Egypt. Jesus' early ministry was in Galilee of the Gentiles, the Gentile areas where he started his ministry. When Jesus talked about prayer and taught them the Lord's Prayer, he taught them to focus on God's name being hallowed or revered, his kingdom come, his will being done. That was to be the focus of our prayers for his glory. When he taught about the most important things in God's kingdom, most important commands, loving God, loving others, and they asked, who, who, are my, who is my neighbor? Jesus tells a story, and the hero is who? A Samaritan story of the good Samaritan. And at the end of the story, he asked them, who was a neighbor to this man that was hurt? And the Jews aren't able even to get the word Samaritan out of their mouth. They just say, oh, the the man who helped him. They couldn't even say the word Samaritan. They hated them so much. He also taught that he had other sheep that were not of this pen that he had to bring also, that they would listen to his voice and he would have one flock and one shepherd. Even Jesus' rebukes showed his concern for the Gentiles. When the Pharisees wanted a sign, he told them a sign wouldn't be given, but that this Gentile, the queen of Sheba, Sheba from Ethiopia, would rise up at the judgment and condemn them because of their lack of faith. This Gentile would condemn them. When his hometown didn't believe in him, he talked about the great faith of the widow at Zarephath and the healing of Naaman, the, um, the, the leper, who, the king of, the, of Syria's um, leader of the army. He said there were many that were lepers, many that were widows at that time, but God went to the Gentiles. He, again, extolled the faith of the Gentiles. When he cleansed the temple, at the end of it he said, don't you know that my father's house is to be a house of prayer for all nations? He talked about this idea. They set up their, their goods to sell in this area here that was called the court of the Gentiles. 
So it seems most reasonable that what, what was not only was Jesus irked that they were uh, selling and making a profit on these things, probably charging exorbitant prices, but especially they were keeping the Gentiles from their place of worship. That makes a lot more sense why he was furious. He even made a whip. When he, uh, he rebuked James and John, there was one time they came to a Samaritan village and they weren't welcome. And James and John said, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven on that village? And it said, Jesus rebuked them for that attitude. When Jesus talked about the end times, he said that this gospel must be preached to all nations, all ethne, and then the end will come. That all the ethnic groups in the world had to hear it, and then the end would come. He had miracles, many among the Gentiles. He healed the centurion's servant. There were ten lepers. One of them was a Samaritan. They were all healed. The Samaritan woman, he went to her and she believed. She told her village what he had done, how he spoke of living water, how she believed he was Messiah. They came out and they urged him to stay several more days. These Samaritans wanted to hear more of the teaching and they received him as Messiah. And so he stayed. In his parables, he talked about the great banquet, that those that were invited, many of them re rejected the invitation. So they sent out the servants to gather the poor, to go to the streets and the alleys and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And then there was still room. And he said, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. This idea that... Uh, Many of the Jews rejected him, and so the Gentiles were welcomed in from the very corners of the earth so that his house would be full, so that his glory would be full. The last thing before going to heaven, Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, all ethne. Even in his death, Simon of Cyrene, that was an area in North Africa, likely he was a, a black man that had the honor to carry the Lord's cross for him. At his death, the centurion said, this man was truly the Son of God. The book of Acts then is the story of how the gospel spread from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, to Jewish and Gentile regions. Then Pentecost happens, and it said at that time there were God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when the apostles began to speak in tongues, these God-fearing Jews from every nation heard the wonders of God proclaimed in their own language, in their heart language. God arranged for that. And you know then they would have gone back to their nations to proclaim this goodness. The Ethiopian eunuch was one of the first converts. When Paul was converted, he was called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. When Cornelius was converted... For the sake of Peter, God goes to incredible extent. First, he gives Cornelius a vision and tells him to send people to Joppa to get a man named Peter. Then while they're going there, God gives Peter a vision of three times these unclean foods being dropped down. And, God sa and Peter says, I can't eat that. And God says, don't call impure what I've called pure. And right after the third vision, the Holy Spirit tells him, go downstairs. There's some men here and you should go with them. And they're the men from Cornelius. So God's got this incredible plan at work because Peter is a little bit hard-headed. He needs some special circumstances to get him to understand God's passion for the Gentiles as well. He goes, he begins preaching the gospel, enters the Gentiles' house and tells them, well, us Jews, we do not normally associate with Gentiles, much less go into their homes. But he goes in, preaches the gospel, and as he preaches it, they begin speaking in tongues, showing that they too have been given the Holy Spirit and are true, are, are Christians, just like the Jews that believed in Christ and then spoke in tongues. It was so, and it says, the Jews with Peter were astonished, saying, oh, God has even granted the Gentiles to have faith. So he did it so that the, these hard-headed Jews would see that God loved all peoples, then the church at Antioch began sending, or people, 
the church in Cyprus and Cyrene sent people to Antioch, and they began preaching the gospel to Gentiles for the first time. Their names aren't even mentioned. They're nobodies, but they got it. They got it that God loved all the nations. And then Barnabas and Paul started a ministry. They began preaching to the Gentiles as well and seeing many come to the Lord so that a special council in Acts 15, the Jerusalem council, was brought together to say, can Gentiles really be converted without having to be circumcised and following the law? Don't, don't, don't Gentile, these Gentiles have to become Jews. They have to follow all of our laws. But the Jerusalem council said, no. No, God, let's make it easy for them to believe that they just need to avoid four things that are most offensive to Jews, but they can stay within their culture and follow God. Then the epistles were written, basically letters back to these churches that were already started by Paul, and that brings us then to Revelation at the end, where we see this beautiful picture in Revelation 5 and Revelation 7, people gathering from gathered from every nation, tongue, and tribe, worshiping God. So we know one day in heaven, people will be there from every nation, tongue, and tribe, and God will receive maximum glory. Okay, so that was about 20 minutes. We just covered the whole Bible. <laughs> but I think it's important. It's a foundation we have to see. This whole thing of God's heart for the nations is... is is foundational to the story. The story of the Bible is how God brings glory to the Godhead by revealing his character and by bringing people from every nation, tongue, and tribe into a love relationship with himself. That's the story. And so then when we see this, and now we come over and look now at these two stories, whoa, they, the contrast is stunning. It's startling. So wait a minute, Jesus, what's going on where you only send them to the, to the Jews and not to the Gentiles? And what's going on here, Jesus? You, call, you ignore the woman and then you call her a dog. I mean, this doesn't fit. We've got a whole Bible filled with all these stories showing us God's love for all peoples. And then we have these two stories that stick out and all the more stunning how different they are. The contrast is startling. But before we go to them to try to unlock and figure out what was going on, I think there's two stories that, that are worth uh, visiting up close again. Oh, and as a summary, I, I like this statement. God's heart to be glorified among all nations is part of his eternal character. And if we are to be Christ-like, then it must be part of ours wasn't something that started at the end of Jesus' life or started with Jesus. No, the first command in the Bible, Genesis 1, 28, fill the earth. It's been God's, it's part of his very character to be compassionate and desiring that all would know him. And if we are to be Christ-like, then it needs to be part of our very character, part of the very fabric of our lives. But let's look at this. This story, I think, is really important and, and helps us to understand, yeah, who, what was Jesus really like? We, we have to wrestle with this in this passage, okay? So on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. He was going into a village. Ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, Now, weren't, weren't all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to them, rise and go, your feet, your faith has made you well. So in this passage, Jesus asked this question. What's going on here? We're not all ten cleansed? Now perhaps it was just merely a rhetorical question. Did, does Jesus know the answer to this? I think he does. I think he knew all ten were cleansed. 
So why is he asking this? Okay? He's acting a little confused. Now, wait a minute. Weren't all ten cleansed? How, where, where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give thanks except this foreigner? Okay, is he really confused? I don't think so. But what do we see Jesus doing here? Is, is he feigning ignorance? Is he pretending he doesn't completely understand this? You know, you might say, well, no, it's just a rhetorical question. But I think you could just as easily say, yes, he's feigning ignorance. He's pretending he doesn't understand what's going on. And he's asking his disciples to explain it to him. Okay? Why is he doing this? Because his questions get his disciples thinking. He's forcing them to articulate an answer rather than just sit there. Or he could just tell them the truth. Oh, see, this shows that Samaritans have faith too, that even Gentiles can have faith. But if he just stated that, he probably had said that so many times already, and still it hadn't got through the hard head of these disciples. So as the master teacher, the greatest teacher, the wisest, the most clever teacher that ever lived, he tries a different approach. And like he so often does, he asks these probing questions. Hey, weren't ten healed? Where are the other nine? And the, he looks at his disciples. I think he probably waited. And they were looking at each other like, yeah, where, where are the other nine? Why is it just this Samaritan? They wouldn't even say the Samaritan. They would say foreigner. Why did just the foreigner come back? Yeah, what's going on? What's, what's the answer? He forced them to wrestle. That's why I'm trying in my life to learn how to ask great questions to people. Jesus did it all the time. He forced people to try to articulate what was going on in their head. Because sometimes they didn't, we don't even know. And so he, he would cause them to be able to put it into words, figure out, well, what am I thinking? What am I believing? It's this amazing ability Jesus had. And something should be in our lives as well. The ability to ask our kids, rather than just tell them, I told you don't do this and this is why. Maybe sometimes a much more effective way is to ask them a probing question that they really have to think about and give you an answer. And you start seeing those wheels turning, whereas before they're just sitting there. Oh, I've heard mom and dad say that a thousand times. <laughs> but now what? You're wanting me to answer that? Amazing. So I don't say for sure he was feigning ignorance here. But when we look at this next passage, it makes me think it's very likely that he was. Because look at this passage. On the road to Emmaus, this is one of my favorite stories. Hey, that same day, okay, this is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Two disciples were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing as you walk along? Now, did he know what they were talking about? I think he did. They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And what does Jesus answer? What things? <laughs> He's totally feigning ignorance. What do you mean, these things that have happened in these days? Well, you know, the death of Jesus Christ, his burial, and now on the third day he's rose from the dead. And Jesus says, what things? I, I, I'm not sure what you're talking about. Oh, come on, Jesus. It's you. If anybody knows about these things, you know about them. You know about them best. But he feigns ignorance. Now, can your Jesus, your view of Jesus, have him feigning ignorance? Some people say, well, that's like lying, isn't it? He's acting like he doesn't know what they're talking about when in fact he does. He's deceiving them. But the Bible says he never sinned. 
Can that, Jesus wouldn't deceive anybody. He wouldn't trick them. He wouldn't feign ignorance. Can your Jesus feign ignorance? Because it sure seems like the Bible's Jesus feigns ignorance here. I think we talked about this with the youth. In fact, one of the youth, it was Jordan we were talking. We were talking about other ways we see Jesus. And we were talking about this one where sometimes we just see Jesus as meek and mild. And he just goes around blessing people. You know, bless you, my son. Bless you, my daughter. I think Jordan said, yeah, it's kind of like a Pope Jesus. Okay, now I don't have anything against the, the Pope. In fact, the current Pope, I think, is, uh, is, is done a lot of good. And I mean, I have some issues with some of the Catholic doctrine, but I'm not meaning to put down the Pope here. But it is, sometimes we get that view of the Pope of just kind of goes around all over the world blessing people. And that Jesus is like that. And so, because we have that view of Jesus... And we've got him in this box, so that's what he did. He just kind of went around loving and being kind and being meek and mild and blessing people. That him, Jesus, feigning ignorance, or even some would say tricking them. Wait a minute, that doesn't fit in my box. That, that's not my Jesus. So I'm asking you to be willing to entertain this idea that maybe this view we've gotten of Jesus might not be accurate. Maybe we need to widen our box to say, whoa, Jesus is, can be unpredictable at times. He can surprise us with some of the things he says and does. He's talking to these guys. He knows they're talking about what's happened in Jerusalem, Jesus' death and resurrection. Now people have seen him. And he asks them, oh, what are you talking about? Oh, come on, Jesus, you know what they're talking about. And then they say, are you the only one that doesn't know about these things? What things? I don't know what you're talking about. I think what he was really saying was he, he asked them this great question because it forces them to put into words what they're wrestling with. Okay? And, and they... They say, about Jesus of Nazareth, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. They crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that, he, that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see Jesus. So his question gets them to talk about what they're wrestling with. What is going on? It's been the third day. He said he might raise, be raised again after three days, and they can't find his body. It's not in the tomb, and these women had a vision. Some crazy things are happening. But what they didn't say was, and we know it's true, he is the Messiah and he rose from the dead just like he said. They haven't gotten to that point yet. And that's why Jesus is able to say, how foolish you are and slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. And then they invite him in to dinner, and he's eating with them. And in the middle of the breaking of bread, he's taken from them and disappears. And then they realize, oh, that was Jesus. That was Jesus. Oh. And can you imagine how they feel? Think of this. What do they do next? They go to find the apostles and find them. And, they t and the apostles are telling about what's happened. They've, somebody has seen, the women have seen Jesus. He's alive. Right? And they tell the apostles what's just happened to him. He appeared to us, and we didn't realize who it was, and then suddenly we realized it was Jesus, and then he was taken from us. In the middle of that, Jesus appears in the room and, and shows them that it's him, shows them his hands and his scars. Can you imagine when that little time is over what those two men might have said to Jesus? 
How are they feeling about it? Did they go up to Jesus? Jesus, you tricked us. You lied to us. You, you deceived us. You said what things? Like you didn't know what was going on. We were, I'm really mad at you, Jesus. No, I think they went up and said, Oh, Jesus. Oh, oh you got us. We totally didn't know that it was you. And then you taught us the scriptures, and then finally we understood. And I bet you they had a big hug and a laugh. Oh, Jesus. Was this the Jesus that was predictable? No. They, he did something to them they didn't expect. He tricked them. I think that's the best way I would say it. Was it evil that he tricked them? No, it's for their good. It bonded them more to Jesus, I believe, and it made them wrestle with what they were thinking about. And I think it helped them see that they hadn't gotten to the point where they were willing to say, yes, he's the Messiah. It's the only answer to all these circumstances. His great question caused them to do that. But he feigned ignorance. He tricked them. Can, can your Jesus, is he playful enough, creative enough to trick people? Or is your Jesus really simple and easy to understand? You can easily fit him in a box and you'll know exactly what he's going to do. Because my life as I live it doesn't bear that out. That Jesus is predictable. He allows all kinds of things in our lives that we're not expecting, not planning for, not wanting in some cases, but he uses it for good, and he proves to be faithful. So yeah, you, it's, open your box. Can we, are we willing to see Jesus in a, a different light that he's unpredictable? That he's full of surprises, but he's, he's holy. He's not sinful. All that he does is of love. Okay, so having looked at this, now let's, let's go back and look at this first problem. So Jesus told us, the 12, don't go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans. Okay, rather go to the lost sheep of Israel. Well, what we know if we look at this lower passage, Luke 10, later he sends out 72 to every town and place where he is about to go. He doesn't forbid them to going to the Gentiles or the Samaritans. So the first trip, he sent the 12 with a narrow focus, just the, the Jews. And then later he sends them to them and others everywhere. And Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to bring salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. God wanted to save all those nations. He made that covenant with Abraham. He was going to bless Abraham first, and then through Abraham, he was going to bless all the peoples of the world. That was his strategy. Some people say, oh, well, if he, so that must mean he loved the Jews more since he went first to them, and then the Gentiles were like second class. They got the leftovers. Well, if, if by any reason that tends to be our thinking. Look at this passage in Romans 2. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. So he says there's going to be trouble to everyone. It will come first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. Would you say that's favor? Oh, God loves the Jews more. He's going to send trouble first to them. Uh, I wouldn't say that's really favor, loving somebody more if you send trouble first to them. But then he says, glory, honor, and peace will come first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And then as if, if there's any question about it, it ends by saying, for God doesn't show favoritism. It was his strategy to bless the Jews so that then all the nations would be blessed. He loved all the peoples equally. Jesus loved them equally. But first he sent them to the Jews, and then after that they were sent out to the Gentiles. No one was neglected or made to feel second class. And that brings us then to this difficult passage. What was going on here? Okay. 
it just stands in such contrast to everything else in the whole Bible that he calls her a dog, that he ignores her, tells her, you're not part of my ministry focus, I'm only for the Israelites. To me, the best way to understand this that really makes the most sense and I, and I can only say this, having already talked about Jesus feigning ignorance, that he was this master teacher, that he was unpredictable. I believe Jesus uses the words of his disciples, what they were constantly thinking about. So at this point, they're still not getting that Jesus loves all people and that they are too. So when the woman comes up and she's, saying, my daughter is suffering, is demon-possessed. And Jesus doesn't say a word. I bet you they're kind of smirking, like, yeah, Jesus, just ignore. That's it. Just ignore that Gentile dog, okay? And then, not only that, they urge him, Lord, send her away. Hey, if he's ignoring her, let's just get him to send her away. Send her away. She's bugging us. She just keeps crying out and crying out. And Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Okay? I think the disciples said, yeah, Jesus, that's right. Not to the Gentile dogs. Israel, you got it, Jesus. Way to go. Hey, Jesus is coming around. I'm, I haven't seen him like this for a while. He's, he's starting to really get it. And then she says, Lord, help me. And he replies, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. And the disciples are, yes, Jesus, that's it. He called her a dog, yeah. Now you're talking, Jesus. And she says, well, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And Jesus says to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. And at that moment when Jesus says, woman, you have great faith. The disciples were like, what? what? They're, they're spinning around their heads in circles. They're, Wait, he was saying everything just right. And then, what? You have great faith. Your request is great. Jesus. He takes their words. He speaks their words. And then turns them on him at the last minute. And leaves them dazed. What? Wow, I got to rethink this whole thing about Gentiles. It makes so much sense. Also, when Jesus said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel, is that true? Was Jesus only sent to the lost sheep of Israel? No, everything we've seen, what, he, what would be accurate would be to say, I was sent first to the lost sheep of Israel. And even in that passage when he sends them out, he said, Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. He doesn't say, I was sent only to. He just tells them, just go to. It's a big difference than saying, you are only sent to Israel, but just saying, this time, go to them. So this statement makes sense to me that, that that's the disciples. They were saying that. Yeah, Jesus was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Those aren't Jesus' words. Jesus not answering a word. Okay, some people say, oh yeah, he was testing her. Definitely, he was testing her by using the disciples' words, which were the common words that were said about Gentiles. Okay, that they were dogs. But she passes the test. She doesn't care. She just knows Jesus is the Messiah. He's God. He has the power to heal. Jesus, just heal me. You are God. And she clings to him and he says, woman, you have great faith. And I hope after we've gone through that whole long thing of the Old Testament and the New Testament and then seeing the unpredictability, the creativity of Jesus, the great asker of questions, could not that Jesus, does it make sense that he might use the disciples' very words and turn them on him as a learning moment? To me, that is so cool. I just say, wow, Jesus, you are amazing. You, you don't fit in my box, Jesus. You're, you're something else. You're surprising me all the time. 
And that's what I see in, in real life. Which says then, if we're, Jesus said he only did the things he saw the Father doing. And that should be the same with us. We just do what the Holy Spirit is leading us to do. Which leads me to believe sometimes the Spirit will lead us to do some unusual things. Now, sometimes we do unusual things, but it's our flesh leading us. We want to be led by the Holy Spirit. And if sometimes there may be some, Lord, really? You just want me to go up to that person right now and say something to him, or whatever it might be? Or say something that we wouldn't normally say? Um, Jesus was unpredictable, but most of all, he was amazing, compassionate, loving, the greatest teacher ever. Can you imagine being with him for three years, seeing him operate? Uh, it's been amazing. And we're called to, to be like him. He's, he's complex, and I've thought maybe that's part of why we struggle with this, is maybe in Sunday school and other times in our lives, as parents, we try to make Jesus keep him simple so our kids can understand him. Um, I can understand that, but sooner or later, you, he doesn't fit in the simple box. He's complex, unpredictable, amazing. And so let that be our Jesus, the one of the scriptures, this amazing Jesus. Not a Pope Jesus that just blesses people, but a Jesus that in every situation is led by the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do just stand amazed. We thank you, Jesus. You are just beyond our comprehension. Lord, I just think for more than 40 years I've been reading your word and trying to follow you, and, and new things are constantly coming up that I discover about you. Uh, your word's incredible, and you are incredible. Thank you so much that you are complex but you're knowable, that you love us. Lord, we make it all our prayer to be more like you. Lord, help give us more of your Holy Spirit that we'd understand what you were really like, that we can be more like you, Lord Jesus. Make that our passion. Help us, Lord. We so often want to keep things just simple and safe. And Lord, you weren't simple and safe. But make us like you, Lord. We pray this for the sake of your name and your glory.